on the Grand Geek Null Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me is James Boyerchuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions, and Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. And I am Robert Ronsky Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. Ivan is being held by Zoom on Earth 2 as, this, as we speak. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs. In order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the intelligent crossover universe. So, welcome, guys. Uh, another week. And uh, yep, yep. This time, I'm going to start with Chris. Uh, do you have anything to announce, or a plug, or joke? <laughs> well, I hope it's considered no joke, as I once again remind people. I'm hoping to get the, the initial batch of Wild Hunt material on the digital stands, hopefully somewhere around the fall, and get your fingers and your toes and other assorted um, body parts crossed. Okay, doke. And James, how about you? All right. Well, since today we're talking to one of the greatest new pop authors around, I would like to just briefly advertise and remind all of you about some of 18th Wall's new pop titles. First, remember Nicole Petit's Scarlet Chase, that singing cowgirl of the West, as I'm sure she would like to be identified, who just had her first new pulp novel recently released, The Dragon Lord's Secretary which has her dealing with war and all of the chaos of 1963 Coney Island. We've also recently released the first volume of J. Patrick Allen's Dead West, West of Pale, which has two monster-hunting cowboys roaming the Old West, dealing with nixes and witches and ghostly tigers straight from India. Also, which in that series... The pilot for that series, the short story Dragonfly Shadow, won Best Short Story at the Pulp Arc New Pulp Awards 2016. So, you know it has to be a good series. And, just to finish out, in February, for our Sherlock Holmes series, we published Josh Reynolds's The Door of Eternal Night, which brings his series character, Charles St. Cyprian, work together with Holmes and Honan Doyle to deal with a mad Egyptian cult. And, of course, if you want to hear more about Josh Reynolds, just keep listening to this episode as we will be asking Derek about the novel he co-wrote with Josh, The Vril Agenda. That's all I've got to plug. All right. Um, as for me, I just have the same stuff, basically, from last week. Um, just a reminder that the horror crossover encyclopedia second edition will be coming out this fall with a nice matte cover um, some revisions to some of the entries and also uh, a new forward from uh, Dynamo Mars from uh, Trick or Treat Radio and the Elm Street Kid Movie Club um, so uh, look look for that um, I am making progress on my other books I've been writing, writing, writing um, and speaking of writing um, our website TelegenCrossingUniverse.com has had a lot of new <clears throat> updates and entries lately um, so you can check that out 
Um, the most recent one I covered was Diagnosis Murder, um, which is a, a series from a couple of decades ago that had with uh, Dick Van Dyke that had a lot of crossovers in it. Um, a lot more than I initially expected when I started researching the show. Um, and I've done uh, Jay and Silent Bob, Dukes of Hazard, uh, Mission Impossible, Get Smart. I, 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 I've done a lot of them lately. Um, I was just in a mood. <laughs> so um, check, check them out. And um, that's really all I've got. Um, so we're going to go to a commercial, and when we come back, um, we will be talking with Derek Ferguson. I'm very excited. So we'll be right back. And we are back. Chris, would you like to introduce our guest, please? I would be more than honored, and I'm quite thrilled to introduce our next guest, who is, bar none, a major force in the new pulp movement that I'm trying to be a part of of myself. He is a co-host of the Better in the Dark podcast. He's also a rotating co-host of the Pulp podcast. And he also has the sites Blood and Ink. And I also must say I'm a huge fan of his movie critic site where he does many great reviews, the Ferguson Theater. Allow me to introduce Derek Ferguson. There is no reason for you to build up my ego any more than already is because it's already out of control. But I, but I thank you. Believe me, I thank you. I take any and all compliments when and where it's given to me. And thank he also you. grills a pretty mean burger. Yeah, well, if you listen to Russ Anderson, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, Chris. And I'll have a few here. Oh. You have the first question? Yes. What I would definitely like to ask you, Derek, as you know, I'm probably a, one of the biggest fans of your pulp adventure character, Dylan. What was your inspiration for such a complicated character that you've done so many books on so far? Ah, uh, okay. The Okay. Dylan came about simply because one day I asked my father, we had went to see, I think it was Diamonds Are Forever. The fir- uh, that was the first James Bond movie I went to see in the movie theaters. And he took me, and to this day, Diamonds Are Forever remains my favorite James Bond movie. Yes, I know, it's not a very good James Bond movie, and it's not the best Sean Connery movie, but it's the first one that I saw in the theater, and I saw it with my father. So indulge me, folks. That's why it's my favorite. And uh, my father was really good in that after we went to see movies, him and I would have discussions about it. He would actually talk to me about what I saw and how I processed it, you know. So we were talking about it, and I, you know, well, how come we don't have, like, like James Bond? And he said, well, when you get to be a writer, because even at that young age, I figured I was going to be a writer because I had written, you know, as far back as I can remember, I've always been writing stories or telling stories or whatever. He said, well, when you get to be a writer... You can create your own Black James Bond. So um, Dylan was created out of, you know, I had seen many things by the time I created him. I saw Johnny Quest and uh, Indiana Jones and James Bond and Derek Flint and all of these things. And it was all a stew that percolated in my consciousness 
or subconsciousness and just I came out with this character and um, basically that's what happened it was just born out of my desire to see an adventure character who was black that we had never seen before I mean we had you know black characters born from the black exploitation area uh, era such as um, John Shaft who was probably the most famous you know it, I mean when you think of black exploitation you say okay Shaft but you know how come we haven't had any since then and um, really that's all I just wanted to do just create a black adventure character in that mode that went to fantastic uh, places and had amazing adventures and wasn't just stuck in one place you know such as uh, urban environment not that Dylan couldn't operate in that urban environment but I wanted to see a black character go to like all these forbidden cities and have these wild adventures and encounter other characters just as larger as life than he was. One of the things that's really fascinated me about the Dylan series as a fictional universe since I started reading them is the way you subtly bind it together with the old pulp series. Because he's not this alone thing. He's part of this great legacy that's been going on for decades. Uh, Where did that come from? Yeah, well, you know what? That's exactly what I planned out because in the cosmology that exists in my head, <laughs> you know, um, Dylan is part of a long legacy of these characters that have existed throughout history and their purpose is to preserve the world for the rest of us. If you've read the, uh, the Vril Agenda, which is... Um, the novel where Dylan encounters Jim Anthony, who is yes. a classic pulp character. And I wanted Dylan to hook up with a classic pulp character and be a bridge between classic pulp characters and the new ones. And that's why Josh Reynolds and I wrote that novel. And at the end of that novel, um, there's a little speech that Jim Anthony has where he tells Dylan, well, look outside the window. And they see the ordinary people walking back and forth. And Dylan says, yeah. And Jim Anthony says, well, you know something? This world is for them. He said, we just protect it and hold it in trust for them. But they're the ones that decide which way it goes. We don't do that. And that kind of defines Dylan's purpose in life afterwards. And he realizes that, you know, just because he knows how to do things, that's what separates them from the supervillains. Because the supervillains say, well, you know something? The world would be much better if I ran it. But guys like Jim Anthony and Dylan and Doc Savage and, uh, you know, all the other classic pulp characters and new pulp characters said, no, we don't run the world. We just make sure that the ordinary people can run it because they're the ones that's supposed to run it. We're not supposed to run it, if that makes any sense. It no, does. that's a very interesting take. Absolutely. That would be the, the, the philosophy, Derek, of noblesse oblige. Am I saying it properly? Now, I, I don't know. Noblesse oblige? Is that what you you know? I mean, I've heard it yes, a couple yes. of times away. But, yeah, my, but see, my <laughs> thing, yeah, you know, my thing has always been that, you know, the pulp heroes and the superheroes that followed after them, you know, their whole thing, their whole take to me should be is that, you know, we don't run the world. We just make sure that y'all guys can run it the way you want to run it. We just take care of these people 
that want to come along and say, like Fu Manchu and Dr. Doom and all these other guys, you know, supervillains that come and say, well, you know something? The world would be much better if I ran it. Well, no. We let the ordinary people run it. We just step in and we just make sure that you, you know, and that's how, that's how the balance is preserved to me. Like I said, this cosmology that I have in my head. If that okay. makes any sense. You'll hear that me does. say that a lot. <laughs> so, since we're going to hear you say it a lot, would you like to talk more about your cosmology or any other elements you have in it? Oh, man. Don't even... Don't even get me started, because I know all of you guys are great fans of the... Uh, and students of the Wall Newton, you know. Yeah. Cosmology uh, put forth by uh, great, great man Philip Jose Farmer. And uh, I've read Tarzan Alive and Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life. Those are two of my favorite books. And that's what actually got me into the concept of that all of my heroes share the same universe and to link the past of the classic pulp heroes with, uh, you know, my characters. Because you'll hear Dylan make references that he's met this guy, this guy, or whatever. And you say, oh, okay, well, well, he's talking about such and such, or he's making reference to this or that, or I'll introduce something, because if you, like I said, I go back to the Vril Agenda. If you read that book, there's a whole lot of classic pop characters that I make reference to in my part that I wrote. Oh, yes. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, people keep telling me, you know, they said, oh, yeah, well, you mentioned so-and-so. You, yeah, well, I did, but it's there for a reason. Because I want to establish that Dylan is part of this continuity. You know, he doesn't exist outside of it. He's part of this grand heroic, um, you know, lineage that is stretched backwards. And that's why I had the Baltimore Gun Club in there. You know, had all that kind of stuff in there because I wanted to establish that Dylan is part of this. You know, he doesn't exist outside of it. You know, he extends it, but he but he recognizes that he exists and he's part of this grand heroic pattern that's existed in history. Okay. Speaking of that, early on in the novel, when he meets with Jim Anthony in the Baltimore Gun Club he runs through a list of characters he wants to meet and train him, but Anthony dismisses quite a few of them out of hand. <laughs> yeah. I really love that scene. That's hilarious. I, but I also had trouble figuring out who was who, except for the obvious one with the Mayan daughters. That's Doc Savage. Oh, yeah, that's Doc Savage. Yeah, yeah. I have a line in there where, okay, where, you know, Jimmy said, yeah, well, he retired to South America. He's got a couple of daughters, which goes back to my... You know, because I subscribe to the theory that uh, Doc's father was, uh, Doc's mother was Maya. Yeah. I, yeah, I honestly think that is, that's why, if you notice, Doc, we never know anything about Doc's mother. We never even know her name, poor woman. And I think that in uh, Doc Savage, his apocalyptic life, Philip Jose Farmer mentions that his mother died in uh on um a yacht yeah there was a yacht that crashed and she died during there but really that's all we know about her we know she gave birth to doc and she died okay but when you go back to the man of bronze and you 
see that yeah well doc's father made this deal that he could take this gold from the valley of the vanished and everything like that well why would they let a white man do that unless he had some kind of blood tie to the tribe that lived there and to me it only made sense that doc's father clark savage senior had married a mayan princess and and if you read the man of bronze when Doc and his uh, Iron Crew get to the Valley of the Vanish, when Lesser Dent describes them, I, I believe it's either Mark or Johnny or Rennie. Or I don't remember because it's, it's been like a couple of years since I read the book. But one of them even make mention that they look a lot like Doc. Yeah, they do. I can't remember specifically who, but yeah, yeah they do mention that. Yeah, it's either Ham or jo- probably Johnny because he's an archaeologist and the anthropologist. So he would be the most likely to pick up on that. But he's the one that makes the connection. He said, well, they look a whole lot like Doc. So I said, well, Doc is half Mayan. So that's where, you know, that whole thing comes into play at. So that's why I think that uh, his mother, you know, and that's how his father got the deal to get the gold out and whatnot. It makes a whole lot of sense to me once you think about it. Yeah. What was the original question? (laughs) <laughs> um, the original question was, who are the other people that were identified because I couldn't? But I'm also just going to throw oh, out there, there was- I like the Mayan explanation for Doc's mother a lot more than that she's the daughter of Wolf Larson. Yeah, me Like, too. I understand that Farmer did it because he's tying everything into Wolf Larson, and Wolf Larson's the big bad guy of his whole cosmology. But Yeah, yeah Farmer loved Will- Wolf Larson for some reason. He really loved, loved yeah. that character. But, uh, but yeah, the other characters that was on there, um, I believe Jim Anthony says to him, well, he crosses off the name and says, well, you don't want to deal with him because he's crazy. Well, that's yeah. a spider. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And then there's another one he says, well, even if he's still alive, you don't want to deal with him. That's the shadow. Okay, that yeah. again makes perfect sense. That's the shadow. Then there's another one he says, well, uh, he retired and he lives on an island off the coast of Maine, and his uh, associates, they carry on his work. That's the Avenger. Okay. That's that the, makes sense now. That's the Avenger, yeah, because the airplane where his wife and daughter was thrown off at, remember in the first novel? Yes. Okay, and his wife and daughter is thrown off of the airplane? Well, he bought an island. In my cosmology, he bought an island as close to that spot as he could get, and that's where he lives now. Oh, wow. That's interesting and heartbreaking. Yeah, and his aides and the children of his aides, they carry on his work. There's an organization called Justice International, which I haven't introduced yet into Dylan's world, but he's going to hook up with them in the future. It's an organization called Justice International. And that's, that's a great deal, and, Yeah, and that's where Justice Incorporated. That's what it started out, but it's grown. That now it's an international organization. Okay. And if I can get away with it, I want to have him meet the Avenger, who is, he's a recluse now, basically. He's a recluse living on this island. He's in a wheelchair. And the uh, son and daughter, uh, the grandson and daughter of Joshua Roosevelt, they take care of him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, since they're doing all of these new short stories and novels with the Avenger, hopefully that's in the cards. Yeah, well, if they do another one, I would hope to be able to do a story with Dylan where he goes and he meets the Avenger. And, you know, I could because that's how I see him ending up, you know, 
He yeah. just lives on this island by himself. He bought an island as close as he could to where his wife and daughter was thrown off at, and that's where he lives at now. And he doesn't even direct any of the organization. He leaves that to other people. He's done, you know. He did yeah. what he could, and he's done. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, Chris, I'm logging. I am completely hogging the conversation. Do you have any other questions? Well, I would, I would like to know, too, too um, Derek, it's cool that also in your Dylan work, you've incorporated elements like the city of Denbrook, which I believe comes from Mike McGee's novels. So you, you have a, you've incorporated quite a bit into the cosmology that uh, Dylan plays in. I mean, even uh, from a lot of it, um, adventure franchises that are pulpy. Which no. I, which I, I, which no. I, I think is cool. So at least uh, because uh, I'm sure. So you want to know about Denbrook? Yes, I yeah. think it's cool that you you include elements like that from so many different franchises oh. that are, I mean, in, that, that could be included just like I'm um, crime noir in addition to you know that aspect of pulp as opposed to like adventure. Which I, I, which I, which I would, or Fantastic Adventure, which I would say, the Dylan books fit into. Oh well, I mean, you know, I mean, I pulled Dylan from a lot of places. If you look at, okay, Dylan comes from a lot of places. Dylan comes from, you know, James Bond, The Wild Wild West, Johnny Quest, uh, Derek Flint, you know, uh, Marvel comic books, <laughs> especially Agent of Shield. Agent of Shield is probably. One of the biggest influences that's on Dylan, and you can see that because if you read the book, if you read the books, there's all these spy organizations that have these crazy acronyms, and that comes from Shield. And uh, there's a belt that Dylan wears that carries all his gadgets in it, and it's a Starago belt. And that comes from the fact that if you look at you know Nick Fury, Agent Shield, Nick Fury always wore that, you know that blue skin-tight outfit with these three or four crazy belts that was hanging around his waist. And they had all of this stuff, and you never knew what it was. Yeah. <laughs> but it looked cool. <laughs> so when I describe Dylan as wearing a Steranko belt, you get an image in your mind, bam, you know what it is. It's true. You do. Yeah. Uh, which is why I wanted I was wondering. Go ahead. I, I, would, I was yeah, I was wondering, thank you, I was wondering, Derek, if, if that was an allusion to Jim Steranko, honestly, when you mentioned it in the Dylan novels, now I know it is. Oh, yes, it is, yeah. I, I mean, you know, quite frankly, it's a Steranko belt, and when you see it, 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 if you've read comic books and you've seen Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., then you know what I'm talking about. You say, okay, well, it's one of them belts that Nick Fury with, with all that funky stuff hanging from it. We don't know what it, look, we don't know what it does, but it looks cool. Yes, and first all the rule other of comic weapons. books. Yeah. That, that weaponry that, that Dylan comes with, he would put cable to shame. I, I love that weaponry, and I guess one of my questions, um, do you do a lot of research on artillery to see what kind of cool things Dylan should have in his, uh, um, what do you call it, his uh, um, repertoire of weapons? Well, mo well, you know what, most of the time, and you have to understand something about my writing process, that if it gets in the way of a story, I will throw out a fact in a minute. And I really will. I mean, I really will. Half of the stuff that you read in the Dylan story, you will say, oh, Derek must have 
went hours of week researched it. No, I made it up. No, I'm gonna be honest with you because you no, know, I'd rather make up something that keeps the story going than stop and do. But I will do it occasionally. I will do my research. Some things I do research. Other things I don't because it just gets in the way of the purpose of what I want to do, which is telling an exciting, entertaining story that will take your mind off your problems for a couple of hours. Really, that's, that's all I want to do. I want to entertain you. I want you to sit down and say, you know, so I'm going to read this. And two or three hours later, you come up and say, wow, what happened? That is definitely something you pull off. That's what I want to do. And if I can do that, then I've done my job. And I don't let facts. Sometimes I will let facts get in the way of it. I, you know, I don't want to say that I totally discount research. I do, but if it comes down to where a fact will get in the way of the emotion of the story, well, then I'll throw out the fact. I'd rather have the emotion. I'd rather have you say, "Oh, wow, that was badass," than you know. Then you go back later on to find out it was a fact. Sorry, oh, man, that Ferguson cat. You don't know. What but see, by that time, I got you. Yes. I, I, I do try to remind myself when I read, you know, too, this is an alternate universe. If you got a universe with characters like Dylan and Jim Anthony, some things will be different, you know, even if it's subtle. Like, you know, the, the world of technology and weaponry. And I, I must say this, too, um, Derek, not only do you keep us entertained, but you do make me think about a lot of moral conundrums, too. Because one thing about Dylan... I notice, even though he's a soldier of fortune, when confronted with certain dilemmas, he always does the right thing rather than the expedient thing in the end. Well, yeah, of course, because you know something? I grew up, and I think that's a lot of problems that we have now in a popular fiction, is that we don't have enough heroes that do the right thing just because it is the right thing to do, which is why Absolutely. I think which is why I think that the Captain America movies are so popular. Because if you notice, Captain America is supposed to represent a way of thinking that is outmoded and that, oh, well, that's old-fashioned, that's corny. But yet, why are these movies consistently the highest grossing among the Marvel movies? Because, true. Cap because Captain America represents, you know something, this is a guy that's always going to do the right thing, no matter what. And you have to respect him for that. And that is what I also like about Dylan, is that Dylan, yeah, he's a mercenary. He will take a job for money, but he will always try to take a job that is in line with his moral leanings and what he perceives as doing the right thing. Yes. He won't do it just to, like, you know, wipe out a village of kids. As a matter of fact, he's more likely to go on the side of the village and say, well, I'll protect you against these guys that want to wipe you out. You know, he does, and I believe that we need that in our heroic fiction. We do. I mean, uh, that's one reason why I don't read Marvel and DC Comics anymore because the heroes have become bloodthirsty. Uh, they have no moral center, and I don't want that in my heroes. I don't. I don't. Uh, one thing I got, Derek, from reading on um, um, Dylan and the Last Rail to Kuzra. That really hit me to say, I mean, in a very positive way, Dylan doesn't like bullies. And, uh, it is, you know, including people who pick on those who are smaller, like little kids. And 
that resonated with me. And that was, once again, as my friend Jamie would say, awesome as. Yeah, well, uh, Last Real Lacuzza is one of the most fun stories I had writing about Dylan, simply because of the fact there's so many elements that I threw. Because I don't write a Dylan story unless I think it's going to be fun, first of all. It's got to be fun. And I want you to feel, when you read one, like you're going to see a Saturday afternoon matinee. You know, that's what it is. It's a Saturday, it's a Saturday afternoon movie that you go see and you have a lot of fun. And there's, and if you take anything else away from it, yes, I'm glad you did, but that's not my primary concern. But, yeah, Dylan does not like bullies. He doesn't. And if he even gets the feeling that that's going And he likes children. His, his main motive in that story for doing what he does is because since he was an orphan, which leads me into another thing when I created Dylan. If you ever noticed, most of our major cultural heroes, you look at Tarzan, you look at Batman, you look at Superman, you look at Sherlock Holmes, you look at all those guys, they were all orphans. Dylan is an orphan also. So he feels an empathy towards children that don't have anybody else to protect them, which is why he protects that child in Dylan and the Last Real the Kuzra. He, you know, he feels immediately drawn to protect her because she has nobody else, and he feels he can, he, he's the best one to get her to safety. And if you read the story, you know, he does it, you know, there's a whole lot of property damage, but yeah, he does his job. And the whole adventure all revolved around him protecting Princess Shannara. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's the only reason why he got into it, to protect his child. You know, he didn't care about anything else. Oh, yeah, he made a deal, but I think I put enough in the story that, and if you've read enough of, about Dylan in previous stories, you kind of get the feeling he would have got into it anyway without even making the deal. But it was a lot of fun to write. I mean, it's always fun to write dumb stories. I mean, that's why I created the character. I would create a character that wasn't fun for me to write about. You know, and all of my characters are, are a whole lot of fun to write about. Well, it's definitely fun and inspiring to read about. And that reminds me, you have also, um, I should remind our viewers, Derek, that you have also dipped into the horror genre with your novella, The Madness of Frankenstein. Would you like to say anything about that? Oh, the... The Madness of Frankenstein. You really want to know how the Madness of Frankenstein started out? Do tell. Okay. Here's how the Madness of Frankenstein started out. Sherman set the Wayback Machine for about 15 years when I wrote fan fiction. And the fan fiction site that I wrote for started a project where they said that they were going to give us the titles of various horror movies, and we would write our own stories. And the title I got was The Monster of Frankenstein, which was actual, you know, Hammer Horror Movie. And I saw it, and I read, and I wrote a chapter and everything like that. And people liked it, and they sent me emails, and they said, but the story kept preying on my mind. And I started writing my own version of it. And it kept getting longer and longer and longer and longer. And eventually ended up being a novel. And I asked a couple of my friends, uh, like Russ Anderson and Mike McGee, well, what should I do with this? They said, man, we'll publish the thing. They said, it's, 
It's good. It's great. And that's what I did. I rewrote it. I changed some names and, you know, and I published a novel. And a lot of people, surprisingly, they really, well, you know what is a lot of people who are Hammer Horror <laughs> Film addicts, they have, they have told me that they love it because uh, the Dr. Frankenstein that's in that novel, it's quite plainly based on the Peter Cushing version of that character, which I love. I have all those movies on DVD, and I watch them obsessively, and I love his version of Dr. Frankenstein. And this is what it is. This is it's my version of a Hammer Horror movie in prose. That's the best way I can put it. Well, I'm, I'm very glad you delivered that to us, Derek. And though our time is, uh, is um, quickly running out, I definitely want to ask you, would you, like to, would, you, would you like to plug your newest book, which is about a certain legendary hairy hominid? Oh, yeah, Return of the Beast, which I wrote and is available uh, via uh, Prose Press. Uh, Tommy Hancock contacted me and said that he had spoken to a director that directed this movie called Search for the Beast, and he wanted somebody to do a novelization. And would I be interested? And I said, well, send me the movie. Tommy did send me the movie. I watched it. I watched it again. I watched it a third time. I watched it a fourth time. And then I said, well, you know what? I think I can do something with this, but I will have to do it my own way. Tommy got back in touch with the director and writer of the movie, and he said, you tell him do whatever he wants with it. So what I did was just basically let's amplify a lot of the characterizations and just uh, reconcile plot inconsistencies in my own mind. And I did it, and I just adopted the fact. I said, "We well, you know something. This is a grindhouse movie, so I'm so this is going to be my grindhouse movie in prose." Okay. And pretty much that's what Search for the Beast is. If you ever want to see how I would do a grindhouse movie in prose, this is what you want to read. And that is awesome. And that is, um, Search for the Beast is Derek's latest. And let me remind the viewers, it is now on sale. Yes, absolutely. Please go get it uh, and go get everything else that I've written. Quite frankly, you know, Papa needs a new pair of everything, folks. So, yeah. so please, yeah, go go to Amazon.com and get Derek Ferguson. Everything you see is written by Derek Ferguson. And you can also go to the Ferguson Theater, which has my movie reviews. I do movie reviews, which some people think are pretty good. Um you can also go to Blood and Ink, which is uh, my site where I just let people know about my various projects and what's going on. And I also do uh, interviews with other writers. So uh, if you want to hear what other writers have to say about their work and what they're doing, please, by all means, drop by there and see what's going on. Um, and then there is the Dylan site, where if you want to know more about Dylan, Please go there. You know, just Google it. Y'all guys know how to use Google. Just go there and you can find background about Dylan and how to get the books and everything about him. And fine. And, uh, of course, I'm on Facebook. If you want to be my friend on Facebook, by all means, send me a friend invitation. All right. 
Well, well that I, takes I, care of things. We usually have to ask people for that at the end of the episode. You're no, in the game. Yeah. No, I've done this. I, I've done this more than times. I know how this works. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Derek, thank you so much for being with us, and oh, um, we're gonna have to have you on again real soon. Oh, thank, oh, thank you, and guys, anytime you want me back, all you gotta do is just ask. I'm here. Absolutely, it was great to see um, you. Okay, thank so you. Uh, yeah, it was great to talk. Listen, you don't have to wait for. Interview to talk to me, you know, you want to talk to me anytime on Skype or whatever, you know, let me know. You know, we'll get together again. Not a problem. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, thank you, Derek, for uh so we're gonna we're gonna go to commercial. When we come back, we're gonna close up. Thank you again, Derek. Okay, thank you guys. Take care. All right, so that's about all the time we've got. Uh, next week will be a special episode. Uh, next week will be the episode that we recorded at Skiracon, um, which we haven't recorded yet. So we don't really have an agenda for that show. We're just going to be talking about what's been going on while we're there. And um, we might have some other podcasters on. We might have some other celebrity guests on um, that are attending the convention. I have no idea. It might just be Ivan, Chris, and I just chatting and saying, oh, look, there's a cosplayer. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, I'm sure it will be fun and exciting, and we're really excited to um, have been invited by Scaracon to participate and to actually be able to record a show there. It's just going to be awesome. Um, so join us for that. And um, as I said, we will have surprise guesses. So surprising that I don't even know who it will be yet. Um, but it's, it's going to be, it's, it's just going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so join us for that next week. Um, before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, Movies. I'd also like to thank our crowdfunding sponsor, Elliot Gilman. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all who listened. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.